welcome to Offwatch, a podcast by the Ocean Race. Welcome to Offwatch. My guest this week is the trailblazing Tracy Edwards, who in the 89-90 Whitbread Round the World race decided to break from convention, prove the critics all wrong, and form a female team that not only managed to sail all the way around the world, but outperform some of their male rivals in doing so. She's a very honest talker about some of the troubles that she had proving to people just what female sailors can do out on the water. And as always, she hasn't given up the fight. If you enjoyed this interview, you can subscribe to our channel, leave us a like and a review for plenty more great interviews to come. Enjoy. The yacht Maiden and their skipper Tracy Edwards was an unusual entry into the 89-90 Whitbread Round the World race. It was not a token team aiming just to finish, and it was, like every other boat on that start line, a collection of competitive, adventurous sailors hoping to take on the best in the world and beat them. But this was the first all-female entry into the race, forging a path for female sailors to become as much a part of sailing and ocean racing as the men. And every twist in their tale is fascinating. At the start, they were overlooked by many and expected to fail after surely finding that the race was going to prove to be too much for them. But Maiden went on to win two legs, was sitting at the top of the leaderboard and finished second, a close second, in their class. The legacy of this boat is still shaping the race today. Tracy, thank you very much for talking to me today. Thank you for inviting me. There is, as I was talking about there, there's so much here and there's so much um, fascinating twists and turns and highs and lows with this story. But just from standing back and looking back at it now, it has inspired so many people. It was inspiring people then as you were doing the race and it's still being talked about now. Were you able back then to know that this boat and your team was going to be so much bigger than just a result on a page? Uh, no. <laughs> uh, we hoped, we hoped that we would change the minds of people who thought we couldn't do it, obviously. Uh, we hoped we would open a door um, or at least take one of the bricks out of the wall, you know, that that uh, was facing women at that time. And I, we understood that winning two legs, whilst we were disappointed that we hadn't won more, everyone else was, you know, sort of jaws collectively dropped around the world. And the juxtaposition, of course, between everyone else and us was that, Everyone else was just happy we were alive when we got to each stopover and, you know, if we hadn't come first, we were gutted. So it was a, it was a strange environment when we got to the end, um, the end, which was so amazing, you know, the finish and the people, and, and that was fantastic. So we knew we touched the hearts and minds, um, I think, of, of a lot of people. I think then a few years later, we started to see many more women come in sailing. And when I did the, the Jules Verne, you know, there was suddenly so many more women to choose from. Whereas, you know, maybe we were literally, you know, who's got a country with a woman in it who can sail? Um, so at the time, we, we thought we'd made some progress. I think with what we're doing now, to have people, and it's so emotional when people come down to the boat, hundreds of people come down to the boat and they say, you changed my life. You you didn't make me sail, but you made me climb Mount Everest. Or the, my favourite is an 84-year-old woman who said, um, yeah, I decided at the age of 84 that I wasn't too old to, to buy a boat and went out and got one. So, you know, it's it's sort of been um, 
if you like, rumbling along. The film obviously has, you know, sort of reminded everyone and has crossed generations. So it's not just my age group, it's now a younger generation that's going, oh, wow, you did that. So I don't think we really realised at the time, but it, it's, uh, it's a wonderful feeling now to look at so many women sailors out there who either were part of my cruise or have said, um, you know, I was inspired by Maiden. It's very, very special. But you, you did have to, to work pretty hard to get there. I mean, that was the thing that sort of stood out for me when, you know, I was reading and, and, and watching as well with the, with the documentary about your tale. Um, you could have just been an all-female team and that would have been trailblazing enough, but it was fascinating to hear you again repeat it now. You wanted to be competitive sailors first. Do, do you ever do you ever have to sort of remind people when they're talking about the boat's legacy that actually, yeah, our, our aim was actually to be very good sailors. The female aspect of it was just another side of it. Yeah, I think so. And I think that goes back really to, you know, really admitting to myself, um, probably as I was doing the interview for the film, that I didn't start out with, um, you know, rah-rah, feminism, women's lib and everything else. Far from it, actually. When I left the world of cruising, which I didn't really see any misogyny because I was either cleaning the toilets or in the galley. So I was always in my place, you see. So it was only when I stepped out of cruising and into racing, I thought, oh, oh, this is what sexism looks like. Okay. Um, so it really was my first sort of experience of that. But for me, even at that point, it wasn't about that. For me, it was about I wanted to be a navigator on a Whitbread boat. I'd done the 85-86 race with 17 men. You know, people say to me, why did you want an all-female crew? Sorry, did you not just hear what I did the 85-86 race on? <laughs> so um, a very profound thought I had after that race was no man will ever let me navigate um, on his boat. So how do I... How do I change the world so it looks like how I want it to look? So it was very selfish, actually, when I started out. And, you know, I remember saying to my mum, you know, I want to do this, but I don't know how to. And she said, well, you know, she always said to me, if you don't like the way the world looks, change it. I said, but I'm, I'm just a tiny little person and the world is so big. And she went, you're thinking too big. What is what is the one thing you can change that will enable you to achieve your goal? I said, oh, I'll have to put my own project together. Oh, and if we do an all-female crew, that will prove that women can do it. Um, so all of these elements sort of came into play, and it wasn't really until I was a bit further on down the line where I went, oh, actually, yeah, I'm a feminist. Oh, well, I'm actually a big, fat feminist. Yeah, I, I'm totally, absolutely, <laughs> you know, I'm, I'm in. So in a way, it didn't start out as that. You know, it started out as me wanting to put a, a boat into a race to win a race, which seemed the natural thing to do. And I, I wonder where that came from. I wonder where that um, that fight came from. I mean, I, I, I mean this as a compliment. Your, your early years or sort of the years that led you up to the race, um, trying to find a, you know, a way to say that, the, which, which is, which is, which is polite. It. But you talk about this very openly and I think that's one of the things that makes this story so, so fascinating the years before the race, the path that you're on, it doesn't seem to be what you would describe to be a steady, natural path that's going to take somebody from being a youngster through to being a skipper in charge of 
13 other human beings on a 33,000-mile yacht race. You know, it was a... Just that aspect of it that you suddenly went, no, no, I haven't got you know, all these racing miles and all this experience and I'm not, you know, right there. I haven't got an Olympic medal, but you managed to do that. Where did that confidence, surely, is that the right way to say it? Where did that come from? Where did that that ability to punch through that barrier come from? I don't think it was confidence because I doubted myself many times. Uh, it was bloody-mindedness, I think, if I'm if I'm totally honest. I wanted to do something. I was told I couldn't do something. So I went, well, we'll have to see about that. But that is very much my nature. Um, I learned the other things as I went along. I had to. I had to learn the different facets of management and fundraising and PR and media and leadership and teamwork and all the other things. But the initial and the nugget that was there, I think, to start off with was this just this um, absolute refusal to be told I couldn't do something and my mother <laughs> was not surprised about this at all you know she said from from day one that was absolutely uh, my character when I was a teenager that was not put to very good use I have to say I was um you know it's it's quite a romantic word to say I was rebellious I wasn't rebellious I was awful I was a horrible nasty teenager and you know, uh, through various things, I had my dad dying, my mum marrying my stepfather, my very volatile relationship with him. Um, I spent a, a you know a large part of my early teenage years being very angry about everything. Um, and I can't actually remember why I was angry about everything, but everything made me angry. And I think that you know, being expelled from school, running away from home, you know, being caught and dragged dragged out of the pub um, more times than I care to mention stealing a car, being arrested, my mother coming to the police station, I was handcuffed to a radiator. I mean, how awful for her, you know, and and I was brought up really well. So, you know, there's always been that element in me and I just was focusing it in the wrong direction. And it was my mum actually and her extraordinary courage and, and capacity for love and forgiveness. And she needed a lot of it. Um, that realised that I was on a downward spiral to someone somewhere I probably really didn't want to go, and it, you know it was pretty much her suggestion that I go backpacking down to down through Europe to Greece, uh, where I ended up working in a bar of a friend of hers, actually a piano bar. Uh, so, you know, I kind of all this is really interesting actually because I do a lot of talks at schools, and and you know I often say to young people. Life, if life was a straight line from A to B, you know, I mean, that would be great. But it's not. It's messy. It's really, really messy. And that doesn't matter. Um, you know, if you if you go down a wrong direction and think, oh, that's not the right one. And, you know, you try another one. But you keep trying, I think, is the most important thing. And, you know, that you keep battling through. And so, you know, I think over the years that resilience and and those building blocks without me realizing it were all being put in place but they are with all of us um you know it's it's if we're lucky enough to realize that we have them and put them to good use i think that's that's the thing i've um i've definitely seen i've definitely seen a lot of sailors a lot of a lot of young people just in general who don't have the confidence or maybe the self-belief to think 
this is this is a good turn for me and it's worth pursuing you do see a lot of people and i'm sure you do in the work that you that you do now and we'll get to that later i'm sure you see a lot of young people who go well if i quit then i can't be accused of failing i just didn't bother and for you you get dealt a you know a good turn your and and correct me where I go wrong on this story, but you know you're you're working as um, you know a host on a boat. You're there. You're serving drinks. You're you know charters, the kind of job that that a lot of us have done. Um, and then you have a you know you have a chance encounter, which kind of gives you an opportunity to go off another direction. And it's quite incredible that you took it. I'm, I don't want to take any wind out of your sails, if you excuse the pun. Can you just describe to us what this? what this little chance encounter was? Because this is where I think, for me, your story makes a very dramatic turn. Yeah, it certainly does. So, I mean, sailing, I think it's probably not too strong a phrase to say that sailing saved my life. I mean, if I, I don't know what would have happened to me if I hadn't found sailing. I remember getting on my first boat and within four days thinking, oh, I found my tribe. This, these are my people. These are the people I have been looking for all my life. They're all here. <laughs> and, you know, so it wasn't oceans and wildlife and sailing that I necessarily fell in love with to start off with. It was people, um, you know, and that journey through mentors and skippers and all these, you know, sort of collecting all this knowledge and then ending up as a stewardess on a boat in Newport and our surprise and mystery and very secret guests was um, King Hussein of Jordan and his wife, Queen Noor. I actually, I was 21 years old and I didn't have a clue who they were. Um, I probably hadn't read a newspaper for, I don't know how, how long since I'd left home at the age of 16. So everyone else was very excited and I was like, uh, okay. Uh, and I think that's probably why I had, you know, sort of quite a laid back attitude to dealing with them. And um, so I was... Uh, washing up down below after after lunch and um i you know sort of felt someone standing next to me and i sort of turned around and it was king Hussein, and he had a dishcloth in his hand and i looked at him and i went i don't think you can do that he said i can do anything i like i'm king and i went okay and we just had this this great conversation i mean we were there for ages king Hussein was a he was a people collector and it wasn't just me, um, you know, Judy Ledden, uh, who was the first woman to uh, hang live out of, out of a balloon on the edge of space where her eyeballs froze on the way down. Um, he, he met her. He sponsored her. Um, he was a ham radio operator. You know, when I went to his memorial service, I was standing next to a guy and I said, so how did you know King Hussein? He said, I am a ham radio operator from Norway. I met him in my garden shed. I'm like, there you go. You know, he could be talking with Yasser Arafat about the peace process one day and then, you know, walking amongst us mere mortals the next. He was an extraordinary human being. And we just connected. And I know people find that hard to believe, but we both were interested in navigation, communications, radios. He was a pilot. By that time, I could navigate and knew that's where my path lay. Um, we both like to take things apart and put them back together again. Um, I'm sounding like a very sad person, but... You know, so we hit it off. And uh, before he left the boat, he said, here's my phone number at the palace in Amman. And I'm like, OK. <laughs> so when I got home after doing a transatlantic, actually just before I started the 85, 86 race, I um, you know, sort of done the transatlantic to get to my boat. 
uh, I called my mum and she said, some bloke called King Hussein's been calling, saying that he, he met you in America. And I went, oh, that is him. Please tell me you wish you were no, no, it's okay, I know you. So, you know, we struck up this amazing friendship and we, on Atlantic Privateer, uh, we used to call him from the boat, um, all, all the guys, me, and we'd be all in the nav station, you know, calling King Hussein on his ham radio. I mean, so it was, that was tremendous fun. And then when I finished the race, my mum was the first person I told that I wanted to do an all-female crew, and he was the second. And he, his support, long before he brought Royal Jordanian Airline in, you know, when we couldn't find any sponsorship, his support was always there. He was always at the end of a phone, not just for me, actually, but for my mother as well. And I didn't find that out until after she died. And I read it in her diary. Um, he really was an amazing person. And, you know, there were times where I didn't want to go on and I did want to give up and I'd pick up the phone and, you know, he, he would talk me through it. So, yes, he did change my life as sailing changed my life in the first instance. And then this person came along and totally changed it forever because, you know, for all my tenacity and bloody mindedness, I really don't think we would have been on the start line if, if Royal Jordanian Airlines hadn't stepped in at the last minute, because as far as we got, we, we just couldn't get that, that extra mile. So, yeah, it's thanks. To Let's talk about that. Um, you say you couldn't get to the start line and, and, and there was a lot of input from, from people like him and you know, greatly received. Was the fact that you were then struggling at that point. I mean, is this where you came up hard against the um, the prejudice that, I mean, still is today, but, but it was even more alive back then? Yeah, it was. I mean, up until, you know, I mean, it took three years to put that project together and we started raising money, of course, as everyone does on day one. You know, you, you know, it's everyone. It's not just us. Everyone's a long, hard struggle. Um, but that really was the 89-90 race, was the, the race of the big sponsors. You know, the, the, the big boys were coming in and, and you know, seeing the, you know, Fisher and Piper, Steinlago, Rothmans, um, NCB Ireland. And so there was money around and, it, it, you know, it was available for sponsorship. It just wasn't available for us. And it, it moved from, oh, this is tough and we'll, we'll just have to keep going and battling through and someone will see how amazing this is to... Uh, I don't know if anyone is actually going to sponsor us. And, you know, we were getting responses back from sponsors, like, you know, a couple of my favourites. Um, one of them was, um, I can't imagine 12 of my wife sailing around the world, so we're not going to sponsor you. It's like, wow, someone actually put that in black and white. And um, my other favourite, um, if you all die, it would be really bad PR for the company. So, you know, I mean, this is what it was a different time. Um, I know things are hard now, but it, this really was you know it was such rampant sexism um you know and you have bob fisher with his famous wonderful line they're just a tin full of tarts and i was in the guardian you know, that's in an everyday newspaper um we have women writing things like back to the kitchen sink girls you failed um women journalists so it, it became a sort of like oh this is going to be hard to bloody hell this is mount everest i mean get the you know get your crampons and your pickaxes out. This is, you know, I don't know how we're going to do this. And we got small sponsorship in and, and everyone in Hamble, I think the entire village of Hamble at some point helped fundraise for us, you know, by going to boat shows and raising money. And um, I mean, it really was a, a sort of, you know, a, a sort of South Coast effort, if you like. Um, 
But when we'd managed to, you know, I remortgaged my boat, we, we bought Distal 3, which had been prestige um, with the wonderful Bertie Reed. He'd sailed her single-handed around the world. She was sitting in Cape Town looking very sad. I went down and saw her, fell in love with her. It's a love affair that's lasted a very long time. Got her back, did the, you know, re we did all the refit ourselves. You know, we, people gave us spare bits. What, we've got a second-hand engine here. Do you want one? Uh, yeah, yeah, we'll have that. Um, go and sail here. I think you can cut it up. Yeah, yeah we'll, we'll have that rigging. Yes. <laughs> so that was at the point where I think pretty much the entire fleet realised that they're not going to go away. They're serious. Let's just help them out. You know, so Maiden was sort of put together. And we did our first race, which is not in the documentary because it didn't flow. So people forget it. But we did the route of discovery race and we won it. We beat all the other Whitbread boats. Um, so when we came back to the UK the year before the start of the Whitbread, we were like, well, that's it. We'll, we'll get sponsorship. We've, we've proved it. Nothing. Nothing. And that was the point where I picked the phone up and called King Sane and said, I, I don't know what else to do. I really don't know how else we get to the start line. Was, I'm wondering at what point that became fuel for your engine. As in, you started this because you wanted to be, you know, you wanted to navigate, you wanted to have your own boat, you wanted to compete, you're a competitor. But being relentlessly told that you couldn't do it, at what point did that make you go beyond where a lot of other fledgling teams might have quit because they couldn't quite get the sponsorship? A lot of people want to do the race. Not everybody gets there. Did it? Do you look back at it now and go, actually, some of those no's were useful in their own way. You know, you turned them into a positive. You turned mm -hmm. it into energy. Yeah, I know exactly what you mean. And we did. Absolutely. I mean, every time, every time someone was rude about us or, you know, treated us like idiots, it definitely galvanised us. But the one thing, the one overriding thought that absolutely kept me going I think the two times I, you know, thought I, I, I can't do this and I don't quite frankly know why I'm doing it, you know, I need to go and do something else, was the thought that if we fail, the next woman that comes along has got all of this to deal with and our failure because we stuck our head above the parapet and we failed. And if another woman comes along and try, everyone's just going to throw that back in her face and I thought I cannot I cannot be responsible for that. And that was the thing. If, you know, I ever got to the point where I just wanted to, to throw in the towel, that was where my strength came from. I had a responsibility. And we all felt it. I mean, that wasn't just me. We all felt very, very strongly that our actions, our words, the way we carried ourselves, you know, the very definite image that we had, the pink shorts, the grey T-shirts, the white ankle socks, the braided hair, that was all on purpose because we didn't want to be male clones. We weren't men, we're girls. Um, we like being girls and it, we're also competitive. And, you know, we also are very professional. Our boat was always the cleanest, the most best prepared. Um, we always had all the charts, you know. So this was all, every single part of this project was aimed at, um, you know, this, this image and, and, and this was all part of what the legacy that we would leave behind. And, and that is something we were very, very aware of. Yeah, I, I can I can see how that weight would be quite 
crushing at times. You know, there, there's a very real responsibility there. When did you first start to see some successes being made in that area, you know, as the race is going on and you're not? behind you know you're not having to be towed back to port you are making the other teams up their game and still they're wanting to try and match you at times did you when was that first time with you thought oh we are we're we're doing this we're achieving this and we, we might just see something change in the future I think attitudes changed within the fleet itself just before the start you know, we we would have people come up to us, guys from the other boats, and go, "Well done." Just didn't think didn't think you'd make it. Amazing. Um, you know, Peter Blake was one of our first very quiet and private supporters, but you know, he he called me up and he said, "Tracy, if you need any help, advice," he said, "I'm not saying that you need it." So if you ever if you ever want to talk to anyone, I'm here. Skip Novak, you know, who on the surface was always like. Oh, you know, the girls will never make it, everything else. You know, he was around my house saying, Now, do you need any help? <laughs> you know, so um, there was a sense that the fleet did, you know, and sailors are sailors at the end of the day. We know when we put to sea, it doesn't matter who you are, where you come from, whether you're black, white, yellow, green, male, female, it doesn't matter. You are a sailor and, and the rules of the sea apply. You know, so we knew when we crossed the start line that we were part of a fleet, that it didn't matter what people on the outside thought of us. We were part of a group of people that believed that we could race from one point to another point and win a race. And so that was quite levelling for us. Um, I mean, the weird thing of coming in in Uruguay where, you know, we'd come third and everyone else was just pleased we were alive and there was this very weird party on the dock. Everyone was celebrating and us going, well, that wasn't very good. Um, but for me, the second leg was the the real page turner. Um, you know, we we were very circumspect. I think you know about our performance up to that point in Uruguay. We took ourselves apart from from the rest of the fleet. Um, you know, head down. Um, a lot of meetings. A lot of um, tactics, navigation. Uh, you know, we. As I said in the film, I'd never been more determined in my life than when we crossed that start line. You know, we all were. And it was just the most, probably the most focused I've ever been in my life. I mean, it does make me laugh when I watch the documentary and I'm going, oh, yes, yeah, so we're going to go really far south when we go into the Southern Ocean. And all the other skippers are going, yeah, no, we're not going very far south. There's lots of ice down there. Because <laughs> I didn't know they were saying that. And I was saying something different as anyone I watched the film. So we did, we made a conscious decision and I said to everyone, this is really risky. You know, the ice is, is quite far north. And to um, a woman, we all went to go for it. And uh, and we did. And that leg for me was one of the most satisfying things I've ever done in my life. And yeah, it was cold, wet and miserable. And there were times on that leg where I did not want to be there. And um, there were times when the crew looked at me and went, you, you're the reason we're here, you. <laughs> so... You know, it wasn't uh, definitely wasn't plain sailing. And of course, you know, Anthony Phillips died on that leg, um, who fell over the side of Crichton's naturally. And that still is still something we all think about. And at the time, you know, um, that was just so shocking and such a reality check, you know, and, and a real reminder of how mortal you are and how dangerous it is there, you know, and you laugh and joke about it. But um, so for me, that was the, the defining moment possibly of my life, <laughs> definitely of, of the race for me. And um, 
you know, coming out of the Southern Ocean and not knowing whether we were first, second or third and then crossing the line in first place, you know, and understanding that we'd, we'd actually, um, you know, we'd done it was for me the moment it, um, you know, it all came together and, you know, I realised, well, this is who we are. We, you know, we, we are who we said we are, which was um, pretty amazing. Let, let's talk about you, your experience um, apart from all the pressures of being skipper and, and, and having all the, all, you know, all these eyes looking on you and how your boat would perform, you said that you wanted to do this um, because you wanted to navigate. When you were there, how did it match up with the responsibility that being a navigator, being a skipper, being on this boat, being cold, hungry, tired, how did that match up with what you were wanting it to to be any regrets at any point yeah i wish i'd had a skipper i mean that was the plan from the beginning you know people said you know say what made you think you could be a skipper i didn't actually think i could be a skipper i wanted to navigate and i wanted to find a skipper now you know mary claude was to all intents and purposes who i thought was going to be the skipper and i mean mary claude was just was the best sailor on the boat by a mile. I mean, you know, I'm not a great sailor. I, I think I'm a great navigator, but, you know, sailing, I have to quite work quite hard at it, you know, and, and here she was, this extraordinary skilled and instinctive sailor, and it should have been perfect, but we had this amazing personality clash, and someone asked me if I had any regrets about the Whitbread the other day. I have one regret that I was such a coward and I hate confrontation so much and I had so little backbone at that time that I didn't confront it six months before the start when I knew I couldn't sail with her because how I treated her was so badly. You know, I sacked her two weeks before the start when she couldn't get a ride on another boat. Um, I mean, we're now best friends and actually Maiden's in Hamble and she's looking after her, but... At the time, that was an awful thing to do to another person. That was a big lesson to me about it doesn't matter about your feelings. You need to treat people with respect and, and you know, grow a pair. It, it, in a way, became a bit of an advantage for us because what I had done unwittingly was I built a male hierarchy as a racing team because that's all I knew because there were no female racing teams. So, you know, I built this very, you know, sort of hierarchical um, pyramid women don't work well like that we work with flattened hierarchies and in sort of circular environments and i i didn't know that when we removed marie claude and brought in um dawn riley as another watch captain we had myself as the navigator and dawn and uh, michelle as as our and we became a, a sort of a, a leadership team if you like and then our two watches which worked really really well let's go then to the end of the race because um, afterwards, obviously, you as a sailor, you wanted to do it. You wanted to prove yourself. Um, I'm sure in some aspects you think you did. And in some aspects you go, oh, I should have tacked earlier. I should have gone further this way. That's that's the race's curse. Um, but in terms of females in the race and the the path that you were laying out for some people, either deliberately or not, to go and sort of continue it, the interesting one for me was how long it took for then other people to continue to sort of go through. And I think that there would have been a lot of people who would look at it 
And, and back then, I probably would have been that person to make the mistake because I wasn't the one that was facing the uphill battle. I would go, well, that's it. Job done. It's, you know, you're fine now. What did it feel like for you when, was it 93, when there was the US Women's Challenge? I think it was four of your crew from Maiden tried to do it, didn't quite, you know, there was, there was a lot of stuff that was... Uh, what did it feel like for you when you sort of go, come on, I thought, you know, I thought we got some momentum here? No one's ever asked me that question before, and that's a very interesting question. Um, you should get some sort of prize. Um, we did think, in a way, that we'd done our bit. So, okay, perhaps that bit done. Um, I decided not to do another Whitbread. Um, I... I took a big break from sailing after after Maiden because, uh, quite frankly, it had taken a lot more out of me than I had realised. And then I went on to, of course, then to do first all-female Jules Verne challenge. Um, and I remember at the time thinking, we've done our section and, and, and now another all-female crew will come along. And remember as well, you know, for me, it wasn't about all-female crews. It was about proving that women could do it so that we could get onto these big, race boats that was what the whole thing was about that I knew there had to be probably two or three more all-female crews you know sort of really entrench our you know sort of um, experience if you like and so of course the American project was I'm, I'm not going to say too much about it because of who it was organized by but it was a disaster um, you know sort of pretty much from the start and it was actually my the four crew from Maiden that went when the skipper was sacked to go and try and rescue the project. So, you know, they were not to do with putting it together. Uh, if they had put it together, it would have been a lot better. Um, but, you know, they, they went to try and say that it was, you know, it was beyond saving, but, you know, they got round and, you know, finished with some semblance of, of dignity. You know, that, that was down to them. Uh, if I'm honest, and I don't know if I'm going to be pilloried for this, but, you know, I'm old enough and ugly enough to um, deal with it. I think that the reason that no all-female crew has been as successful as us, um, although Team SCA came very close, is that all of these projects, apart from that one, were started by men. I've always believed that the reason Maiden was successful is because it was managed and run by women for women, um, because we work differently, not, not better or worse, differently. We are very different. <laughs> So, you know, I'm, I'm really hoping that the, if there is another all-female crew, that, that it's, it's, it's got that element that it, that it needs. Having said that, um, when we did Maiden 2, which was Grant Dalton's old boat club med, um, when we uh, just went out to break records, we were the world's first mixed gender team. And that's only 20 years ago. World's first professional racing mixed gender team. Six girls. Six of the bravest guys you've ever met in your life um, and hugely successful. I mean, I broke more world records in, <clears throat> I think, a year than any other boat. And because that's eventually what we were sort of aiming towards, you know, so the all-female crew, yes, great, wonderful. And I mean, I would never go back to sailing with men. I love sailing with women, um, you know, clean, quieter, um, you know, it's a... <clears throat> Sorry, it's a whole different experience, but um, yeah, it has. It, that's an interesting question. It's been an interesting journey for women sailing in in the Volvo, 
Um, I think that Mark Turner um, had such a great idea with, with um, you know, such a positive, genius idea of making it an advantage to have women on the boat. I thought that's, why didn't anyone think of that before? I think one of the things that ha has changed and one of the things that has changed is if you were a young sailor now, male or female, and you imagine a round-the-world professional yacht racer, um, there are enough opportunities to choose uh, a male hero and a female hero as well. And, you know, obviously these things have got to kind of work their way through the through the generations, as it were. You know, it's, it's slow, agonising progress, I'm, I'm sure, for a lot of people. But it's interesting to hear you talk about some things that have changed, some battles still to be done, because when I came out of the Maiden documentary, which if anybody hasn't seen, it's it's a really fascinating, well-done tale. Um, but when I came out of it, I was just stuck trying to think about how you managed to fight that fight then and how you sort of came up against these enormous barriers and it was clear that that was what you had to smash through and you did it with confidence and tenacity whereas I'm thinking about some of the female sailors that I work with when I'm coaching and it's a lot harder to notice where you are being held up or where you're being steered off course by prejudice now i mean is that a fair thing to say it feels like you've got to really pick your targets they still exist now but it feels like it's a harder thing to see it's not quite so uh, blatant honestly i i think you're an honorary woman i have to say um you have just hit the nail on the head exactly 30 years ago Prejudice was in your face. You know, it, it walked up to you and it said, you can't do this. And you could look it in the face and go, yes, I can. Now it's insidious. And it is, you know, we, we've come all this way. And, and with Maiden now, you know, we take young women sailing on Maiden apprenticeships. We call them mile builders. And we hear stories that actually make me want to cry. Um, it, it's, and this is not... I have to premise everything with this is not all men. Um, and in fact, this is not actually individual males. This is patriarchy. This is, you know, we are a country that is steeped in 2,000 years of maritime patriarchy. It is, it, it's everywhere, you know. <laughs> I remember not so long ago standing in the Royal Southern Yacht Club having a conversation with a bloke who said, yeah, well, of course, you know, the watch system in Nelson's day would have been, you know, so much more effective. Like, oh, God, the di the, he died 300 years ago. Just leave it. Drop it. <laughs> you know, it's like, ah! So, but I think, you know, joking aside, what's happening now is, I think, across the board, this isn't just in sailing. You know, I think men who are misogynistic and uh, often aggressive, and don't want their garden shed to be, you know, entered, breached, have gone underground um, because they know they can't say certain things out loud and they know they have to be seen to be behaving in a certain way. And yes, you're right, it is harder for young women to deal with. It, this, is, this is across the board, as I say. I mean, I, you know, we have people working on the team who were bullied at work, who, I mean, had things said to them which I, you know, I, I went... Sorry, what men say things like that to young girls and officers? 
oh yeah uh, yeah of course <laughs> happens all the time uh, oh okay um and it's interesting actually i did a talk in uh, america to a university in america the other day and also had a first time question from a young man who said can you tell a young man how i help my fellow women in you know in this what do i do and i really had to think about it and i think it's we all need to speak up you know it it it's not it's not enough that we know this is going on and that we go to the girl afterwards and say you know i support you or the woman sorry um you know it's that men have to front up you know we've we've done a lot of heavy lifting a lot of the heavy lifting up until now we've we've fought really hard and worked really hard and i think portrayed ourselves in a way which has been um you know practical and processed and measured um you know yes i do get angry sometimes as you may know so i'm getting now so i would calm myself down and you know and the young women that we have as i say sailing on maiden will say the same thing if just one guy on the boat and it can be you know if you don't want to tackle your mates or be not one of the boys you know you can say it in a, in a jokey way oh would you talk to your daughter like that or your mother or your sister or you know whatever and there is a way to do it so sorry this is a very long-winded answer but it's a question that i think about a lot and it's so important and i think i think more and more men will take pick up the gauntlet and I do see that more and more I, I see more conversations going on between men and women about equity equality um sexism misogyny so that's a good thing but you're so you're so right it is so hard for young women to tackle this because if they say something they are hysterical or oh, I, wouldn't, I wouldn't have her on another boat you know she, she's very dramatic makes a fuss you know if you ask her to go and make the tea woohoo you know so uh, we've all got our work cut out for us to deal with this and some of the stuff that you're you're doing now because you you've sort of brought us round to where we kind of where we are now with maiden um and this is where i think we need to sort of talk about the fact that this boat its story did not end with you at the end of the of the Whibred. you know you you sort of um you know you rescued it and and you know, it's still going strong. And, and I guess the question that I want to ask is, I think that for a lot of people, any sailor likes their boat. It's more than just a craft. You know, you put hours into it, whether it's an expensive yacht, whether it's a cheap dinghy, it doesn't matter. It's your boat. But I wonder whether it does go a little bit beyond that for you and Maiden, because when you found that it was basically being abandoned, you know, you launched this enormous effort to not only get it back, but resurrect it to its kind of sailing glory. You know, how much does that boat and being able to sail it again mean to you? Well, it, it's a she, actually. I'd just point that out to you. Um, <laughs> we had to sell Maiden at the end of the race, and that broke my heart. I mean, I couldn't, I could not watch her being taken away. Um, you know, she was part of the team and we built her pretty much with our own hands but I knew she'd gone a really good home and that was fine and then over the years as I was doing other sailing projects I would see you know sort of and get updates about what she was doing and um, un unfortunately she was a little bit passed from first post and in a way I did try and not look because I knew she was looking sadder and older and harder and uh, well, aren't we all um and uh I I it got to the point where I uh, 
I heard she'd been taken to the Seychelles and um, the guy that had taken her to the Indian Ocean was looking for a secret island um, which um, had pirate treasure buried on it. So I thought, oh, okay, this is, you know, not going to end well. Anyway, um, the week that I met Alex Holmes, who asked me if he could make the documentary, I had an email from the Seychelles from Eden Marina saying, do you know who owns your boat? Because he's dumped her and left her. And if nothing happens, um, you know, no one comes to get her, we're going to take her out and sink her. <laughs> what? So I contacted all the other crew and went, we've got to rescue her. I mean, this is, you know, this is crazy. Um, you know, no man left behind. Uh, so we did a big crowdfunder and in two months we raised the money to buy her again and um, found the money to put her on a ship and get her back to the UK again. And uh, the funder this time was, I mean, seriously, if you wrote this as a film, people would not believe it. Um, the, the person who funded all of this was King Hussein's daughter, um, Her Royal Highness Princess Maya bint al-Hussein, who called me up one night and said, I hear you've rescued Dad's boat. I mean, I pointed out it is my boat, obviously, but um, she, she was like, what can I do to help? So I said, well, you know, we you know, we need to restore her. And so she very, very kindly, you know, sort of sorted that all, all out for us. And while we were restoring her, we were all thinking, what are we going to do with her? You know, she's too young to retire. Um, I haven't really, sailing school, really have the patience. Um, and it was my daughter actually that said to me, mum, you, you know, you, you're patron of all these girls' educational charities. Is there some way to link this in and maybe inspire my generation? I mean, she was 16 at the time. And so the germ of an idea was born and Princess Hire's passion about education and, you know, this team started coming together and it all felt very like maiden, <laughs> people just turning up. Um, I mean, I wasn't trying to recreate it, but it felt, felt like it had that heart, you know, that, that we had all that time ago. And to be able to, you know, take maybe another brick out of the wall uh, to a help young women sailors but more than that for me um raising money and awareness for girls education I mean I'm passionate about girls education because you know I I grew up in a country where I was handed an education on a silver plate at the age of 15 I went oh no thank you very much I I don't think I need an education and, and off I went there are girls who would die for the opportunity for an education who are not allowed one so for me it was a way of atoning in 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 some way but also you know, it's a way of me, you know, I, I, we've kind of tackled, Maiden's tackled the problem here, and now we want to look here at grassroots and at all the issues that we've learned in the last sort of 40 years, really, of fighting for women's rights and girls' rights. And that all comes down to education, and not just in sailing, but in, in you know, in every walk of life. And you, you know, you look at the statistics that come out of, of UNICEF, and you look at the fact that, you know, we could reduce child marriage, infant mortality rates, we could stop the spread of AIDS and HIV. Now, surely that starts to apply to other viruses and, you know, uh, medical situations. You know, if you educate a girl, you educate her family, her community, her, um, you know, her, her country. You, you increase the socioeconomic status of a country where more girls are educated than not. You know, there are so many reasons to educate girls. You know, we could er eradicate poverty. 
So when you suddenly look at it like that, you, you know, this is a bit of a no-brainer. And the idea for Maidens to do a three-year world tour and raise funds and awareness for girls' education then just sort of, you know, came on as a, as a natural thing of that. I mean, it's grown <laughs> a lot more than that. We now have the message of hope. We have the hands on the spinnaker. The film came out at the, when we left, which was just amazing. You know, I'd love to say I planned it like that, but I didn't. Um, you know, so Maiden Factor has been the most joyful thing and truly happy and wonderful thing I've ever done in my life. Um, and for me, that love affair with Maiden, uh, you know, is is ongoing. But then, you know, when we sail into places and I see the affection that other people have for her, you know, I know it's not just me. I'm not just completely mad. Um, we had one guy came down to the boat, burst into tears and said, can I touch her? <laughs> it's like, uh, yes. <laughs> so it, it's been wonderful. We've enjoyed every minute of it. Unfortunately, you know, March brought everything to a grinding halt, as it did for everyone. Uh, so, you know, we're fundraising and struggling like everyone else, but, you know, trying to keep going and hoping to start again in September with a new three-year world tour. So if anybody wanted to come and see the boat or get involved in any way, you know, where is it you're, you're aiming to go when the wheels of the, the world start turning again? So uh, we, well, we're looking for, for volunteers to work on Maiden during the summer. If you want to go to the maidenfactor.org, um, looking for donations as well. So I just get that plug in. Um, otherwise, everyone will kill me. Uh, I think it's likely that we will go east and we are desperate to get Maiden to visit Jordan because Maiden's never been to Jordan. Unbelievably, you know, they have this extraordinary link and uh, we've had huge support uh, from uh, the Jordanian people um, from the tourist board and, and we would love to take Maiden there first really before we go anywhere else but we'll see. It'll be fascinating to see the boat still going on and I, I've got to admit that you know over the summer I did do some work on the water and going out from Hamble and seeing Maiden on the side when you guys were refurbishing it and everything it was um yeah, you spot that boat a mile off. Whether people know it or not, they've seen that boat in images or pictures or in history books. They've seen it. So it's wonderful to know that it's still going and still doing good, as uh, are you as well, Tracy. So thank you very much for talking to us so passionately uh, about uh, what you've achieved so far. Thank you so much. Really appreciate the opportunity. We hope you enjoyed this episode and keep an eye open on our social media channels where we'll be announcing our future guests and you can submit the questions that you want to get answers to. If you enjoyed this, then subscribe for many more and we'll see you in the future.